You're about to listen to an episode of Legally Fonds. This episode is brought to you in association with LawSchool.ie. LawSchool.ie is Ireland's leading provider of tuition for the FE1 or King's Inns entrance exams. Each course is delivered live online with a specific exam focus and supported by the latest manuals. Shorter, pre-recorded workshops are also available and courses commence every year in June and November. Register anytime at lawschool.ie and for a 10% discount on any course, just use the discount code LEGALLYFOND. Ode to Joy from Beethoven. It's the anthem of the European Union. And in this episode of Legally Fond, we discuss a pivotal Irish case relating to the European Union. Why is it that every time there's a big EU treaty, Irish people have to hold a referendum on whether or not to ratify it? Why are we the only country in the European Union that does this? And how come when we said no to the Nice Treaty, we had to vote on it again? And when we said no to the Lisbon Treaty, we also had to vote on it again? Welcome to Season 2, Episode 10 of Legally Fond. In December 1986, Taoiseach Dr. Gareth Fitzgerald's government passed the European Communities Act so as to ensure that the Single European Act, which was a European Economic Community Treaty aimed to establish closer economic and political cooperation, was passed by the deadline of the 1st of January 1987. However, Raymond Crotty, a university lecturer, lodged an interlocutory injunction in the High Court to stop further progress of this particular act. It was Christmas Eve. Of course, they're about to close for their holidays. And Mr. Crotty comes along arguing that this piece of legislation gives excessive and undue competencies to European institutions. All that was awaiting was President Hillary's seal. There was a government jet waiting in casement aerodrome to ship the signed document off to Rome, the then designated city for the collection of the ratified treaties. And the High Court acceded to Mr. Crotty's uh, constitutional complaint and placed an interlocutory injunction on the progress of the treaty. This opens up the basis for the discussion of the case we have before us today, a very seminal Irish judgment of the case of Crotty. Essentially, uh, the results mean that all major EU treaties have to be put to the Irish people by way of a referendum. And I suppose we're going to discuss, is this an unnecessary interference in a country with a representative democracy, which already uh, allows our elective legislature to to make uh, very important decisions in foreign and economic policy? Or does the existence of this protocol safeguard Irish democracy? We'll delve into that discussion soon. But first, let me just explain the legal background to the case and what was found. So Mr. Crotty came into court challenging the Single European Act. Now, the Single European Act did a couple of things, including introducing qualified majority voting in the council, um, creating a new court, which was inferior to the Court of Justice. But the part of the treaty that was at question really in the court was this foreign policy element, part three of the Single European Act, which encouraged and fostered this common foreign policy a development among the members of the European economic community, as it then was. So the court considered this and considered the Irish constitution, which said that the government or the executive is in charge of foreign policy. However, there's immunity effectively to measures which necessitate our membership of the European communities. However, the court said that in ratifying this treaty, the state is effectively 
fettering its ability to decide upon its own foreign policy, and that only the people can decide to alienate a specific power of government by referendum. Justice Hederman said that the government is the guardian of foreign policy powers. The dissent in the case found that the Irish government was effectively not giving up its foreign policy powers. Part three of the Single European Act aimed for cooperation and consensus building with other states, but it did not forego Ireland's foreign policy powers. Ultimately, the Irish state uh, still retained the power to veto recommendations on foreign policy by, by other states. Let's contextualise this as well. This is the 1980s, 1986, 1987. This is Western Europe we're talking about. Eastern Europe is still under the control and domination of the Soviet Union. It makes sense for a westernised, democratic Europe to have uh, a a cohesive and and, and consensus-driven foreign policy in, in dealing with the Soviets, dealing with Eastern Europe, and indeed dealing with America. It makes sense, certainly. And we've spoken before about Ireland's policy of neutrality on the podcast does it undermine Ireland's neutrality if we're, well, we're forced to take these? We weren't joining NATO, so that is a big difference. Like, it, we weren't joining a military organisation. Um, and, you know, it, it, that issue does come up, the policy of Irish neutrality does come up um, again in later referenda. Uh, but as much as, you know, it, the, the European Union, I know there's kind of murmurs of it now, and uh, I've heard some... Uh, rumours about it through the papers that there may be a European army and um, you know minimum defence budgets but at that time there was there was no realistic prospect of a European army I don't know how small the EU was well it wasn't even the EU but it was far far smaller than it is today yeah I mean famously as well in the 1950s there was proposed military cooperation between the uh, European coal and steel um, factions or, or the six countries that made it up which after the Treaty of Rome became the European Economic Community but particularly de Gaulle felt in the 1950s this was still I mean less than 15 years after World War II and that the concept of French and German military cooperation was was really a, a no-go area so, and I, th- I think that sentiment still exists and of course we have to recognise Germany is still divided at this time and that later becomes a huge issue of contention within the European Union when Ireland has its presidency under Charles Haughey. So there is a lot of dissent. There's not, there's not a lot of consensus on the table here with the European Economic Community as it exists in this form. And I guess the, 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 um, the goal of this treaty was to create greater economic and foreign policy cooperation. How do you think Irish people felt? They voted in 1973... That, that was the year we acceded to the By European... an incredible majority. By an incredible majority. But do you think people anticipated how kind of dynamic the European economic communities, as it was called then, was going to be? Um, you know, did people anticipate that it was going to encompass foreign policy? I did. Well, whenever I talked to my parents about the, you know, Ireland joining the European Union, all I heard was the feckin' roads, like, and how great it was. <laughs> mm, and, you yeah. know... They built they built the roads of Ireland and, you know, connected. I mean, they dragged Ireland kicking and screaming socially <laughs> and economically into the 21st century. I think we have a, so much debt in that regard to Ireland's transition from a very backward, conservative, slow country, economically speaking, to essentially a powerhouse that we, that we are now. Or- We're one of the most open business, open and friendly, business friendly economies in Europe. 
number of prominent lawyers at the time agreed with Crotty that there was an issue with this treaty in ceding constitutional power, one of whom, or one of those was, uh, of course, Mary McAleese, who later became president, as well as a number of future High Court judges, and indeed Rory Brady, who was later an Attorney General, and Sean McBride. So a lot of very educated legal minds took issue with this, where the executive and the legislature saw no problem. Now, there is... um now we're here, you know, defending kind of a, a sort of unified view of European foreign policy, which is kind of like as far beyond agreement it is. You know, I think most people generally have an opinion on it on the European Union. I'd say I think there was a poll done in Ireland that was ninety percent in favor of European membership, which mm. is you know we're we're ridiculous. very pro EU country yeah. and pro EU, and that's not a bad thing. But you can still be you know pro-EU and understand the benefits of it but still want to be asked about it every now and then and still want to be asked about the major changes changes of it because you know look there's a big issue in the European Union about you know democratic deficit and and just transparency understanding what does the EU do to what extent does it uh, regulate our lives and who are the people that make these decisions Um, the Eurocrats the commission, the unelected officials. Now, there is an argument to say that you should have a kind of technocratic-driven European Union whereby you have people who have the skills and expertise to make decisions and don't necessarily need to enjoy a democratic mandate. There is there is a suggestion that decision-making is improved by that. Now, I can understand as well why people have an issue because the only actually directly elected members we have are the members of the European Parliament, which has no right to introduce legislation in any way, shape or form. It is essentially which glorified is, which, talking you know, shop. By, I yes. guess, by some ordinary definition to, you know, just a lowly 22-year-old like me, is it like the Parliament is supposed to be able to, you know, introduce and vote in legislation. Like, that's the whole I, point. Any Parliament in the world should be able to introduce yeah, legislation. I, okay, look, we've all done EU law because you have to. It's mandatory. You know, you could say that's a form of brainwashing or not. That's, you know, up for the up to the listeners to decide. But it is the structure of the European Union is one of the most confusing things I've ever had to look at. The the fact there's a tangible difference between the Council of Europe and the European Council mm-hmm. just throws me for six. Yes. There's the Council of the EU, the Council of Europe. And, and the, the European, European Council. Council. And there are three distinct bodies, one of which has nothing to do with the EU. It's, like it's completely confusing. They couldn't have made it anymore. It's almost confusing by design. <laughs> like, look, as much as there are numerous problems with the Irish political system, you know the way we. But do you know, what? proportion representation is good. You know, you don't get tyranny, tyranny by my, minority. You know, we can fairly and most people understand that. I vote for the person in my constituency and they get a vote and they're going to represent me and then I can introduce legislation on my behalf. Like, the European Parliament, I spent six months looking at it and... Um, yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a Franco-German-driven machine. I mean, there's no doubt about that, particularly with the, the absence of the United Kingdom now, which traditionally, anyway, was a big lobbyist for smaller nations and, and the interests of the Netherlands and the Irish. And I think we particularly hid behind the Euroscepticism of the United Kingdom in advancing some concerns that we ourselves may have had. So there's Give us back our fish. Yeah, I mean... So the net result of this case is we have to vote on any significant amendments to EU treaties or if any new treaties are being brought forward. Now, I guess this comes down to a question of 
expediency versus democracy that on the one hand the Irish government would love to just be able to unilaterally ratify these treaties you don't have to go through this um month long a couple of months long process of campaigning for a referendum expensive and high risk if it doesn't pass and we'll we'll come to those examples in a in a couple of minutes time and uh, also having to face a debate with all the Eurosceptics in the country who all come out of the woodwork <laughs> when it suits them for these referendum campaigns. And I think what we've seen, would you think it would be fair to say, on, on that point, Alex, about the complexity and the lack of transparency with the EU, these treaties are so high level, legal, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of pages long I know documents. exactly the point you're going to make. Go on. They're, well, far, I'm too for... compliment- They're far too, too complex, complex for the common man, like, like you know, me and Pierce to understand. Mm. You know, that, Shame oh, on you, Gavin. <laughs> that, oh yeah, just, well, God, well you I guys, have, you have... won't understand the question, so I won't bother asking you. Is not, uh, is not an excuse to not have a referendum. Alex, like, why do you think there was a turnout in 2001 for the uh, the vote, which was to ratify the Nice Treaty? 34%. The turnout was 34%. Why was that the case? Because nobody cared. Exactly, because people because didn't it understand. Was the beginning of the boom, nobody was turning out in protest voting against the government because people generally, the referendum is not only a referendum on a particular issue, it's generally the rec, uh, a referendum also on, on the government as well, the government of the day in terms of people's satisfaction with it. But the referendum failed, Pierce, in 2001, the first time we had it. So people obviously weren't too happy at the time. But I also think, look, is it Pierce, not a very... what did what did the Nice Treaty do? Can you tell me in simple English? Listen, I'm I'm not here to 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 uh, debate or, or inform you of the merits or or indeed drawbacks of the Nice Treaty when they are readily available on any reputable European Union institution website. We're here to talk about the facts, Gavin, and the facts are that there was a rejection of the Nice Treaty, and later on there was a rejection of the Lisbon Treaty. And in, is it not a very performative exercise if the Irish people rejected? only then to be subjected to the very same campaign again and told by the European Union that your decision was incorrect. So for the, yeah, you said this, like the Nice Treaty, the turnout was 34%. The turnout for the Lisbon Treaty, uh, the first time was 53% and was narrowly beaten. I still don't, as much as, you could say that that's a failure on the part of the European Union to... Main, like you know, keep showing that it's valuable and it's valuable to participate in. And you know, if they, a lot of European politicians want to build a collective European identity, like you know, it's all it's on all of our passports that you know it is. We are a European citizen as well as an Irish citizen, and you know that comes with benefits of you know visa fee tra- visa incredible travel. benefits. Like you know, we don't have to pay customs. It is like it's incredible, but. You still have to remind people that that you know of all these benefits and of the benefit like on a for for us living in Dublin, which is you know we are three of the half a billion citizens of the European Union. Now it's hard. Like, look, if you think about it, the United States doesn't look that united at the moment, and they still they have had a collective identity for a lot longer than we have. It's a difficult thing to do and to manage, but. Like, yeah, but look, the, the Nice Treaty wasn't uh, a vote on. Do you like the European identity? But it, but again, it wasn't being a cultural re- vote. But being These rejected were, is. It, I under, I, I understand. Every time it goes to a referendum, it, like in countries, a lot of the times they have to ask twice because people tell them no. Like whether it's the European the Constitution only... in France lost, 
But there's the, I think Denmark and the Netherlands both voted no on the Lisbon Treaty as well. That's actually incorrect, Alex. Ireland was the only country to vote to ratify the Lisbon Treaty because we were obliged to because of the Crotty case. But I think we can probably all agree, more democracy is good. Voting on more things is good. However, it is, I guess, important that there is meaningful engagement with the issues that people are voting on. Otherwise, it becomes this kind of perfunctory exercise or an opportunity for angry individuals to engage in a protest vote against the government if they don't know what they're voting about or they don't understand it. But yeah, and then you have I the contrast of Germany where they have no referenda. The only referendum that exists in Germany is changing of state boundaries. And this is obviously a legacy of, of um, post-war Germany whereby they just didn't trust the German people to vote on things because of what happened prior to that. The European Union is very complex, very big, and is like a human organisation that has many faults, but it's been great for Ireland and probably will continue to be. We're the only English-speaking country left. The idea that, you know, oh, well, we're not going to ask the people because they'll be, you know, just too stupid to understand is ridiculous. No, but I'm not I'm not saying that. I'm, I may be saying the low turnout and the... The rejection of the two referendums at the first time round for Nice and Lisbon. Referenda. I think that's illustrative of a population that either isn't interested or doesn't understand what the issues at play are here. And who would blame them? I think we can agree because these were complicated things. These were not changes that you would feel... Bertie Ahern famously didn't... Or was it Brian Cowan, rather? Hadn't read it. Hadn't read it. He said he's working his way through it. (laughs) It's a big document. Like, I mean, look, the Lisbon Treaty... Vaguely speaking, it gave a stronger role to the European Parliament. It adopted the EU to a larger number of member states, which had increased massively during the 2000s, and incorporated the Charter of Fundamental Rights in, into a treaty, and it became legally binding. I mean, All these are good these, things. These are good things, but these are not issues that really affect people's day-to-day lives. But you can say that sort of like national sovereignty is an issue. Like, again, we've seen it with the... Like the UK left in 2016, and then there was basically another referendum uh, via the general election last year. Yeah, and and I like just playing off what Alex has said there. The thing is, it's obviously not an absolute change in state of Ireland's national sovereignty when we have these various treaties coming, and there, there's there's a development process of the role of the EU in relation to Ireland. But it's a stretching, it's an altering of how we define national sovereignty in relation to the Constitution. And I think it is a refreshing and positive exercise that every so often when a treaty comes along, Irish people are reminded, yes, we are ceding some powers. Yes, we're changing how we operate slightly. And yes, different decisions are going to come from different places, be it Brussels, be it Frankfurt, be it Strasbourg, instead of Dublin. Now, as long as we're informed of that process, then it's good. The changing of, of where but it comes sure, from, whether sure it's we Dublin... Vote, we or vote the, in the European elections every five years anyway, and that should be the opportunity to be reminded about that. Those no, issues. because I, I think there's a fundamental policy and political change in terms of how the EU operates in the form of these treaties. I mean, and we're is, a smaller is... country. We don't have as much influence. Like, and do you remember now under the Northern Ireland Protocol that basically, you know, there will be one and a half million Irish people, well, some of them consider themselves Irish, uh, who won't have European Parliament repre- representation because they're in, in this kind of weird limbo of Northern Ireland where they're covered by uh, some European rules and some UK rules, but they don't they don't get to vote in the European rules. If we go to, just to kind of close off that discussion, as we said 
last week in our episode in Seamus Wolf. We will err on the side of more transparency. It is not is it not better to err on the side of more transparency transparency and more involvement of citizens in the democratic process. The yes. problem with that is if you have a window that is too transparent and too clean, there is a danger a bird may fly into it. <laughs> and that bird is I mean look there has to be there has to be an element of discretion of the executive uh, an element and of indeed it. uh the civil service or any other statutory body or semi-state body to perform its tasks without constant review by the people. Alex, can you just remind listeners what the Irish Constitution says about foreign policy? The executive has the power to decide foreign policy. They can't, you know, just allow somebody else to do it for them. It's like they can't allow, you know, some random group of 20-year-olds recording a podcast to write the legislation and pass it. Shit, like, I, is thought, it... I thought that's what we were doing here tonight. <laughs> yeah. We cannot enter, for example, this is the whole idea that Dublin could enter into a bilateral agreement with London on the border. You can't. It's Brussels and London. It's the European Union mm. as a multinational conglomerate has to enter into its treaty. So so that is a significant element of, of, of secession of, of foreign policy powers on behalf of Ireland. Might I stress for the better, I think, because sometimes when we look at the calibre of individuals who make up the, the Foreign Affairs Department in this country, I'm actually glad it's run from Brussels. And I think as well, the bargaining power, as Alex has made very clear, is much stronger in in a in a, a community of nations of 500 million people than a little island out in the Atlantic with 4 million. And we, we do punch above our weight, really, like diplomatically, because we've had, you know... Former... With the UN Security Council seat now, I mean, I think we are a bit of a diplomatic powerhouse in, in, oh, in that the, regard. The, the Economist only wrote recently about Ireland's soft power, how it is a, a role model for other countries on how to excel in soft power. Well, that wraps up episode 10 of Legally Fun. Thank you very much for listening. We have a website, by the way. We haven't put up stuff recently on it. But at the moment, if you head to legallyfonds.com, you can read more in depth about some of the cases we covered in season one. You can get some of our book reviews as well and links to buy those books that we have reviewed. They might make nice Christmas presents or Chris Kindle presents for the law student in your life. Thank you for listening and talk soon. (laughs) 